Well, thank you for being uh, so polite and so quiet as we came into the lecture theatre. Your expectation is well noted. Um, Your Excellency, ladies and gentlemen, uh, very pleased to welcome you to this uh, lecture uh, this evening. And it's good to see so many of you uh, here and so many colleagues uh, as well. Clearly, the Euro crisis has dominated headlines around the world for the last five years. And no country has been more central uh, in the focus of this crisis than Greece. Greece was the first to receive a bailout, the only one to have a second bailout, and perhaps the only one to have speculation as to whether it might need a further set of uh, measures. And the depth of the recession has been tremendous. The social consequences in Greece have been uh, tremendous. At its height, two out of three young people were unemployed, uh, a third of the general population unemployed. No one can doubt the extent of the social consequences of the crisis in Greece. Indeed, if we were to compare recessions then the recession that has occurred in Greece is almost as significant in terms of magnitude as that of the Wall Street crash of 1929. But the Greek crisis has also uh, prompted an unprecedented role for the European Union. We're now in a world in which the European Union has a troika for each bailout states. In the Greek case, there is an EU task force to help with technical advice for Greece. Many governments are giving bilateral technical assistance uh, to Greece. Never before has the European Union intervened so extensively and so deeply in the affairs of a member state. And after the crisis uh, erupted, of course, we then had a sequence of other member states with problems in the Eurozone. We think of a sequence of countries requiring their own bailouts, others needing other kinds of uh, support. And the EU has been obliged to think how to prepare, how to strengthen its uh, systems of rules and governance to prevent another crisis in the future. So we now have the EU uh, fiscal pact or the fiscal treaty trying to overcome the apparent shortcomings. Clearly, there are many questions, many different dimensions uh, to this crisis. How we got into the crisis, how we might get out, and how we might prevent future crises in the Eurozone. Of course, our guest this evening has had a better vantage point than most uh, for the crisis and for the origination of the Eurozone. As Prime Minister, Kostas Tsimitis uh, took Greece into the Eurozone, was present at each of the European Council meetings at the birth of the Eurozone, uh, the consolidation of the Eurozone. So he has seen uh, the Eurozone creation and its management at first hand. Moreover, as Prime Minister in Greece, he undertook one of the most notable reform programs in recent Greek history. Such a program, uh, he said, was indeed in the name of modernization. 
And I remember here at the London School of Economics, there was a conference on the theme of modernization uh, at the start of his uh, premiership. Because we're very proud to say that Costas Simitis is an alumnus of the London School of Economics. Uh, he graduated um, some years ago. Uh, we don't have to be so precise about the timing. Uh, having studied here at the LSE, he also then subsequently became a professor of law, both in Germany and uh, subsequently uh, in Greece. His latest book, The European Debt Crisis, The Greek Case, uh, is a major contribution to our understanding of the Eurozone and of Greece's position uh, within it. It is both scholarly and accessible in its narrative. It is clear-sighted in the diagnosis of Europe's dilemma, and it argues that Europe needs to regain a momentum uh, and devise new ways of operating to meet the challenges that have become evident in the, in the crisis. So as such, the book is very timely. And um, let me say that uh, if you're enticed by the lecture this evening, you will be able to purchase a copy of the book uh, subsequently uh, outside. So I'm very pleased to welcome you to this uh, lecture. And on a personal basis, I'm very proud to be uh, introducing Costas Timitis, of whom I have the greatest personal uh, respect. He has kindly excused me, uh, however, because quite unusually this evening, whilst I can introduce and hear the lecture, uh, I personally must then dash to uh, Heathrow Airport to take a, a flight to Athens. So surely this audience will accept my absence going to Athens of all places. But the LSE director is giving a lecture at the Megadon in Athens tomorrow evening, and uh, I simply remind you that the LSE director is the one who pays my salary. <laughs> Uh, but, like you, I want to hear this lecture, and I'd be delighted to, uh, to follow the lecture. After the lecture, my colleague Spiros Economides will chair the question and answer session, and there should be plenty of time for uh, you to ask uh, questions. So, without further ado, let me join you in the audience, uh, but let me invite you to welcome back to the London School of Economics one of our most prestigious of alumni, Costa Simitis. Ladies and gentlemen, dear friends, my subject tonight is the crisis of the European institutions. Yesterday, as you know, serious political decisions were taken in Greece by the Greek government after a session of the Eurogroup. I am ready to answer questions concerning these developments after my lecture. At the beginning of the financial crisis of 2007 and at the start of the public debt crisis of 2008, there was a widespread aversion of new initiatives across the European Union. It was widely held that the Lisbon Treaty of 2007 
contain all necessary changes to the EU's institutional framework and no further reform should be sought. Reform fatigue prevailed in the Union, contrary to the activism of the last decade of the 20th century. There were various reasons for this. The accession of 10 new members in 2004 multiplied the difficulties in consultations and decision-making in the EU. These new member states, mostly formerly in the Soviet sphere, reacted and still react against unifying efforts and new rules. Their argument was and is that we did not become members of the Union to substitute Brussels to Moscow. France and Germany had exerted pressure for the EU to be expanded in the hope of acquiring new markets and new allies. However, the new countries felt and feel that their supporter by excellence is the USA and they expressed doubts over and objections to European policy. From 2001 onwards, the composition of the European Council began to change. The Social Democratic majority was gradually replaced. Governments were elected in Germany, France and Italy that no longer nurtured the same interest in European affairs. Their focus shifted towards internal concerns. The European Commission underwent a shifting opposition reflecting these trends. Conservative Commissioner became increasingly dominant. The idea of continually studying the EMU's operation on complementing the treaties with new regulation to deal with the new problem was abandoned. The Euro was for the members of the Council a matter for the Ministers of Finance and the Central Banks, a technical matter which Prime Minister should not have to deal with. There was no vision. The EU suffered from short-termism. Policies for growth and initiatives to reduce the imbalances between Member States were considered unsuitable. The increase in funds for the EU budgets so that new projects could be launched met with intense resistance. The view that conversions should be sought by every member state through its own means and not through new tangled interventions by the EU dominated. The financial crisis that began in 2007 furthered this sentiment. When the crisis began, the Union's inclination was towards maintaining the status quo, avoiding interventions, projecting the view that automatic stabilizers would solve any problem. If you remember, when Mr. Barroso was elected President of the Commission, he said and he promised that he will not undertake any new changes. No more change, he said, and after saying this, there was uh, agreement from the main partners of the European Union. Economic developments revealed, however, the, a truth that the pro-European language of all participants concealed. 
every step towards integration entails disagreements and a struggle between various ideologies, pursuits and interests. The compromises, opt-outs permitted for each wave of changes and the maintenance of the status quo mean that progress is extremely difficult to achieve. And the opt-outs and the maintenance of the status quo were one of the main objects of discussion in the European Union because many countries do not want a change. However, European integration presupposes motion, changes and the inescapable disputes that accompany them. Greece triggered the crisis in the Eurozone, but was not the cause of it. The cause is inherent in the fact that the Eurozone is a full monetary union, but an imperfect economic and fiscal union of member states with different structural features. The major economies of the European North differ significantly from the major economies of the South. The current crisis is a public debt crisis only to a small degree, and in that dimension it largely concerns only Greece and Portugal. The causes of the overall crisis are far more complex and varied. The causes of the crisis lay also in the private sector of the economy, in the banking system, foremost in the banking system of a number of member states, and in the inadequate oversight and control by the fiscal and monetary authorities in the Eurozone. The EU has still not designed a rounded policy of economic governments a new way of dealing with imbalances between the developed core and the less developed periphery. It has not formulated procedures for the systematic promotion of economic growth which would dis distribute the benefits to all members in as balanced way as possible. The absence of a general consensus on the direction of the EU and differences provoked by this absence of clarity, together with ineffective efforts to control the crisis, have affected European public opinion negatively. The European project has come to be viewed as problematic. In the countries of the South, a large proportion of citizens consider destabilization programs being applied as oppressive and a dead end, in Greece, for example. In Germany, by contrast, public opinion approved them. Three quarters of its population did not wish for any more concessions to Greece and rejected any new financing. In the countries which had not been dragged into the maelstrom of the crisis, mistrust prevailed over the efforts to renew the Euro European project. The feeling was common that any changes to the treaties would restrict further the already imperceptible role of the small member states. The governments did not react to this mentality, the European governments did not react to this mentality as they should have done.
It is a principle of the treaties as in the context of the EMU, every country is only responsible for its own liabilities and not obliged to cover the liabilities of other states. In any economic and monetary union, however, the action of each member state influences the actions of the others. Therefore, strict non-responsibility, as the treaties uh, say, is impossible. The crisis compelled the members of the Eurozone to engage creatively in weakening the rules of the treaties under pressure from developments and risks deriving from the inability of the peripheral states to meet their obligations. In the case of Greece, after a period of indecision, the European Union devised a financing through bilateral loans. In the case of Portugal and Ireland, they established a provisional stabilization mechanism. The provisional mechanism later became permanent and financed a second stabilization program for Greece. The obfuscation, the disagreement, the partial solutions, the reconsiderations were continual <coughs> because all these measures were not written in the treaties. The treaties had not uh, foreseen any of these problems and they had no rules for such a situation. And that's why the reconsiderations were continual. The decisions over supporting Spanish banks were revised twice. The fiscal compact does guarantee an efficient preemption of crisis, but it does not ensure that an existing crisis can be overcome. The divergence level of competitiveness, administrative capacity and education cannot be mastered simply by debt reaction or the recapitalization of banks. The underlying problems have been known for a long time. There is an evident lack of central guidance and the absence of a truly inclusive way for setting all member states to pull in the same direction. The harsh economic adjustment that is the guiding policy in the large part of the euro area cannot be an end in itself. <coughs> the development of a coherent policy that will confront the causes of grave imbalances and will unify partial and fragmented efforts in a common direction towards economic growth is therefore imperative. This requires a step to be taken towards much closer economic and political cooperation for which the members of the Eurozone are not yet ready, whether ideologically, politically or administratively. Those responsible for the management of the Eurozone and the EU showcase their efforts in ensuring fiscal discipline and monitoring the economies of the member states. This has indeed been extensive. Progress was achieved. Kevin Featherstone me mentioned the fiscal pact. But uh, Kevin, as Jacques Delors observed, given the overlapping complexity of the European semester, the six-pack, the two-pack, the fiscal pact, the European pact, the growth pact, 
the rescue mechanisms and the regulations of the ECB, who is in a position to understand, let alone administer the system? Who can deduce with any certainty where it will finally lead the EU? Political unification is questioned. The roles of the European Commission and the Council of Ministers for General Affairs have been watered down. The European Council has emerged as the central player and the European Parliament has acquired a more pronounced presence. As a consequence, the balance in the institutional triangle of the Commission, Council, Parliament has been altered. An axis under German leadership has become the lever for European policy formation, and despite the obvious disagreements between the different countries, it will continue to have a decisive influence. Moreover, informal groupings of member states with special interests have materialized. Mr. Uh, the new president uh, of the Commission has promised to give again a leading role to the Commission because the Commission has lost its uh, leading role. And uh, Mr. Juncker thinks that we should come back and have, as uh, shall we say, chief of the European Union, the Commission, but it is doubtful if he will succeed. The conviction that the European project is not just about the achievement of a single monetary and economic area has to prevail. United Europe constitutes a much broader project. It is framed <coughs> it is framed by the coexistence of the peoples of Europe over centuries. Their common experiences and the interaction of their cultures, their related way of life and the organization of their society. It derives from their common values and established practices of cooperation, but also from the painful experiences of war and totalitarian rule. It is connected to a nexus of principles where democracy, personal liberty, respect for the individual, education and widening knowledge play a primary role. This project, the European project, concerns the need for common action and the inevitability of a shared future in an ever-changing globalized world in which new possibilities have an increasingly determining presence. The euro is not, therefore, the result only of an economic assessment, nor was it imposed by the markets to subjugate people to their desires. It was a politically necessary step to expand common activity, to abolish constraints and national boundaries, to create economic stability and growth. It was a goal of the predecessors of the EU, those who created the European Economic Community, long before discussions of the purpose and the form of the monetary union had become. European unification is all the more necessary because of globalization, which has greatly expanded the ability of markets to guide and determine policy. 
the balance of power between markets and politics has tipped steadily in favor of the markets. The current global climate necessitates mechanisms for monitoring the, these markets, rules to clamp down on international speculation, and central European political authorities that are in a position to impose on the market's behavior that will protect the share interests of the public. Political union is therefore imperative. Dealing with economic problems of the EU is, for this reason, integrally linked to the understanding of the political logic that underpins it. <coughs> the measure to control the crisis, the common fiscal rules and the common framework for drawing up budgets must be understood and implemented in conjunction with the broader pursuit of the common cause. <clears throat> the obligations every member state assumed through its participation, as well as the rights it acquired, are tied to the commitment for mutual solidarity and the pursuit of the Union's common interest. The EU is neither a club where only the select have to say, it's not a club of the northern countries, nor an amalgamation of states governed by others from an authority with superpowers. It is a collective project, a project of all European states espousing liberty, growth and adjustment to the new international conditions. Had the countries currently finding themselves in crisis maintained their own currency, they would, would have been able to devalue it in order to restore competitiveness and growth within a few years. Devaluation was the means to restore uh, economic stability, and devaluation was used in many, many times by all European countries. But this is not possible anymore. States in crisis must implement a strict austerity policy and extensive structural changes for a very long time. It should be reminded, however, that devaluation, devaluation because devaluation is presented as a solution, that if is uh, again a possibility for each member state, uh, we would not have the crisis. But we should not forget that devaluation does not prevent a growth reducing fiscal tightening. Without tightening, inflation will erode devaluation. <coughs> In Greece, uh, we had uh, in the last uh, uh, 30 years, I would say, 30 years, uh, three devaluations. We had our own, uh, our own money, our own uh, uh, money, the drachma, and we had three devaluations. In Greece, now there are many that say we go back to the drachma, we don't want the euro, we devalue, and everything is all right. But they don't remember 
that inflation was 25%, that inflation was 25 or 20% for years, not only for one or two months, but for many years. And uh, the evaluation for many years is something that uh, leads to completely stagnation. So, and devaluation leads also to social unrest, loss of credibility, and the possibility of decades of economic stagnation. The deepening economic contraction in Southern Europe today has not been addressed by the Union in a persuasive way. If austerity in the South had at least been compensated by fiscal expansion in the North, the overall fiscal stand of the Eurozone would have been in macroeconomic terms neutral. But since the North joined the drive for austerity instead, the Eurozone ended up in recession. Major policy measures concerning Southern Member States are not yet on the agenda of the European Union. The tackling of the root causes is therefore still necessary. The difference in levels of growth between the centre and the periphery of the Union threatens the integrity and perhaps the existence of the Euro. The Eurozone is an achievement which for economic, social and political reasons cannot be reversed. A return to different currencies is neither useful nor possible. What is needed is a new way for the Union to function. In today's globalized world, economic, social and political ties between states have become irrevocably entwined. A return to complete autonomy is no longer possible for any country of the Union. Symbiosis, cooperation, policy coordination and common targets are a pressing necessity. In the EU's current context, the problem is not one of regaining lost autonomy, because autonomy cannot exist anymore in any country in the way it existed before many years, because of the globalization, because of new relations between the different countries. So we should not look how we give again to each country its autonomy, but we should try the formulation of a common European policy, fit for modern boundary transcending conditions and which responds to the need and particularities of the peoples of the Union. This is about devising ways to cooperate on a European level, making it possible to adjust to the demands and values of citizens, to combine efficiency with market control, growth with greater equity, and the democratic setup with meaningful participation. What is being sold is a policy for the European polity in the supranational era, which will both take account of the particularities of every member state and secure the attainment of common goals. Economic governance and permanent measures to deal with the crisis require, in any case, amendment of the treaties. However, though, 
The citizens want economic unification to proceed. They do not accept a supranational economic authority that would decide on matters for their country, ignoring the views of their own governments and parliaments. They take the view that European policy restricts member states in their efforts to respond to the needs of their people. It focuses on the free functioning of the market and not on correcting the consequences of market failure. Social justice consequently suffers, democracy also suffers. Jacques Delors used to say, people do not fall in love with a single market. Ideas and proposals are needed that will generate a broader mobilization for European unification in every country. We must determine and explain what future we are aiming at. Must convince the citizens that the era of globalization will not be able to face competition from the USA, China and other states with population of hundreds of millions. If we insist on fragmentation, many states, national egocentrism and the solitary course of the path of every state, it's not possible to solve our problems. Our continent's history, with its continual wars, hegemonic aspirations and national excesses, clouds an understanding of a common narrative for the future. But without it, it will be unable to maintain and improve our common way of life with its liberties, opportunities and values. In seeking a new framework for the functioning of the EU, we must not begin by asking whether we aim at a federation or a confederation on some other model of common action. European unification will not be achieved by adopting historical examples of federations such as Germany or the USA. The post-national reality of the EU has already drafted a multi-layered, supranational structure of governance. However, the current form does not constitute the final framework. Under circumstantial pressure, member states continue to cede sovereignty and to adopt new rules affecting autonomy and cooperation. The most striking example of this continually evolving situation is the system of uh, helping members to face an economic crisis. It was constructed as a succession of decisions made of a period, over a period of three years. Despite the completely silence of the treaties on the relevant issue, and despite the principle that every state is responsible only for its own debt. So there has been a change, but this change was a change that was realized step by step without having a common goal. Jürgen Habermas, Martin Wolf and many others have emphasized the democratic deficit within the Eurozone. The stress that power is now concentrated in the hands of the governments of the creditor countries 
principally Germany, and a trio of unelected bureaucracies, the European Commission, the European Central Bank, and the International Monetary Fund. They remind us that the peoples of adversely affected countries, like Greece, Spain, Portugal, have no influence upon these bureaucracies of the Commission of the Bank of the Fund. The politicians who are accountable to them, to the people at national level, are in reality powerless in connection with the leading uh, organs of uh, the European Union. This divorce between accountability and power strikes at any notion of democratic governments. The Eurozone crisis is not just economic. It's also a crisis of democratic legitimacy and accountability. The tensions between the desire of people to express their opinion and how they are governed and the reality of how power is exercised has led to a crisis of confidence in the Union and will provoke a huge political crisis at some point in the future. Democracy is a necessity if you want the European Union to function, to be accepted by its citizens and to express their interests. Uh, many proposals have been made for the reform of European Union governance. I shall mention two. They may be more radical, but they indicate the extent of the changes that are needed. A year ago, a group of German economists and lawyers published a declaration known as the Glinicker Group Declaration towards a European Union, towards a Euro Union. According to them, a series of fundamental changes are necessary. The Euro area needs a robust banking union. The banking union is uh, created now. The common bank restructuring mechanism must make creditors accountable. Creditors accountable. Only when these options have been exhausted should be resolved to the European taxpayer possible. The monetary union cannot be permanently stable without a controlled transfer mechanism. Transfer mechanism is a mechanism that transfers money to other countries. A euro area insurance mechanism to cushion the fiscal consequence of a dramatic economic downturn is needed. Situations in which a euro area country is forced to enact draconian austerity measures on its populations, as was the case in Greece, must remain exceptional. Next point. The Euro Union needs an economic government capable of acting. This economic government should have graduated rights of intervention in national budgetary economy. If a member state violates the stability criteria, the economic government must be able to make binding stipulations of how much the state has to save. The state will keep the decision where to save, and so on. Uh, I mentioned also another point. The Euro government finally must be chosen by a Euro parliament, a Euro parliament, 
and not the European Parliament. The Euro Parliament can be staffed either with deputies from the European Parliament representing the Euro area countries or made up from members of national parliament so as that control of a governmental spending remains in the hands of national parliaments. This is the one proposal. The second proposal is by a group of French economists, among them the well-known Thomas Piketty, published in May 2014, a manifesto for Europe. <coughs> they accept many of the proposals of the Glinike group, but propose to take them still further. According to them, a sovereign European authority needs to be given the power to establish a common tax base that is strictly regulated, because in the European Union you do not have today a common tax base. So you should have a common tax base, and the proposal is to set an European corporate income tax with a minimum rate of around 20% and with an additional rate on the order of 10% to be levied at the federal level. This would make it possible to give the Eurozone a real budget on the order of 0.5 to 1 GDP of the Eurozone. It is essential that the budget of the Eurozone comes from a European tax, not from a contribution by the states. Otherwise, people will not grant to the Eurozone the right to decide how to spend money. The manifesto uh, takes up also the idea of a Euro Parliament, Euro Parliament representing the states through their national parliament. The manifesto stresses that the only way to put the debt crisis behind is to pull the debts of the Eurozone countries. Otherwise, speculation on interest rates will renew again and again. It suggests to pull all debts exceeding a country's 60% GDP limit and not the political component, for example, set a condition for reforms that should be realized. Now, uh, I mentioned this, these two proposals so that uh, you understand that there is a discussion about the possibilities to have a European government and change uh, the European uh, uh, agreements. But uh, these are, as I said, radical, and uh, probably they cannot be realized now, though they should be realized. As the proposed changes are not feasible at present. The prevailing view of governments in both the Eurozone and the European Union is that crucial decisions must be made by the governments of the member states following intergovernmental understandings and arrangements. Intergovernmental understanding and arrangement is the principle of every action in the European Union. This decision-making, however, is incompatible with the project of the gradual integration of Europe and above all with the existence of a single currency whose problems must be addressed centrally and promptly. 
a Jean Pisani Ferry, a known French commentator, noted, Europe is condemned today by its leading members to experiment with politically acceptable but systematically inferior solutions and to muddle through in search of a path towards an effective and democratic government structures. That's to muddle through is, uh, I think, a good uh, picture of what is being done and uh, what will happen also tomorrow. But as I said, this cannot be the solution in order to have uh, unification. You have heard also that Mr. Juncker and the new Commission are inclined to proceed to important changes, but it is still uncertain if the Member States are ready to accept a change of the status quo. This is why many commentators of recent developments in the EU have supported a gradually approach to new forms of cooperation. Despite the difference in their reasoning, they agree that exiting the crisis will involve escaping forwards, that is, in the direction of stronger economic governments and political union. That is the goal we must pursue seriously and insistently. The Greek problem was not an unfortunate happening in the forward march of the Union, not a deviation that overturned a well-designed project. It was the catalyst that showed up the weaknesses of how the EU had been functioning, that showed up the need to remodel its institutions so that it does not fall short of the broader role it is being called upon to assume. Thank you. Mr. Simitis, thank you very much for that extremely broad-ranging uh, view of what has gone wrong and what should be done uh, in uh, fixing the problems of Europe. Uh, we have plenty of time for questions. Uh, could I please ask the audience, uh, when asking their question, to identify themselves and to keep their questions as briefly as possible so I can accommodate as many of you who do have questions to ask in the short space of time uh, that we have uh, ahead of us. We'll take questions in groups. Vasilis Mastiotis, Helenik Ustavati, LSE. Mr. Smithy, uh, you gave a very stimulating uh, lecture. Uh, and I take it the main message was all these problems of, of design and the incompleteness of the, um, of the Eurozone. Of course, this is something that uh, has been discussed extensively, and you mentioned quite a few of the, of the scholars that uh, addressed this issue. However, there was no mention about the, the specific uh, problems or the, uh, the deficiencies in policy making at the countries that, that suffered, uh, you know, the bailout countries. Um, and, and you concluded with that point that this is not a problem of, of Greece. But then, in a way, this doesn't explain why Greece is still in the bailout program uh, and the other countries are not. 
uh, but also it doesn't explain why the crisis started from this. And I just want to ask you, on the point you mentioned about the, the asymmetries in the Eurozone, and that we need a distribution that you said quite early on, uh, the, the asymmetric effect of the interest rate, the common interest rate in the Eurozone, created growth in the South, uh, and there must be responsibility for countries like Portugal and Greece that in the high growth period they didn't, they didn't utilize these capital inflows for increasing the productivity, but rather in increasing the house prices, the asset bubbles, and so forth. So could we find a responsibility for the country specifically on that? The gentleman at the back. Here, Mr. Smith. Hi, <clears throat> Zachary Pidis. I'm a Greek correspondent in London. Basically, I would like to ask you, if you would like to answer, obviously. Could you speak up, please? Of course. Isaac Arpiz, I'm a Greek correspondent in London. I would like to ask you if you would like to comment uh, the recent political uh, development in Greece, the nomination of uh, Mr. Dimas as, the, as a candidate of a, of a president, and also I would like to know your opinion what will happen in case that we go for uh, snap elections. Do you think that will create problems to the Greek economy? Thank you. As the first question is concerned, I completely agree that uh, the different interests in the European Union created the conditions that, for the crisis. And uh, though all countries have the euro, and everybody has a euro in uh, his uh, portemonnaie, the euros defend their values. The euro in Germany has another value in euro, and you must take into consideration when you have a, to adjust your policy these differences. So the European Union was not ready to control uh, the existing differences in interest rates or they did not foresee what would happen with the interest rates. In the year 2000, 2001-2002, uh, the interest rate, for example, I don't remember exactly, but we can say it was 3% in Germany, it was also 3% in Greece. Uh, no, no. It was uh, in Greece. It was eight or nine percent. So the Greeks, instead of uh, going to their banks to get the money, went to the German banks and got the money from the German banks, the French or Italian banks, to three percent, and uh, always more and more and more and more money. And the German banks were giving money to Greece and uh, Greece uh, had far more money that uh, was under the economic conditions uh, acceptable. And then the, the debt problem began 
because uh, the Greek enterprises uh, could have not the possibility and also the Greek state to pay back these uh, debts that they took because of the low interests. In 2007-2008, the interest was changed, and it was also for Greece 8%, 9%, 10%. So uh, this is uh, proof that it is necessary for the central bank to find ways that uh, the market is functioning and control the banks. What should have been done, I can't say exactly, but in any case, there must be a rule that... Uh, the banks of the north or the banks cannot give to a country of the south or to a country of the north that has not enough money so many loans that they cannot pay back. That's uh, the, the experience. So how this will be done? Perhaps it will be done through the banking union. But uh, on the other hand, I must also say, because uh, the Germans say what Greece has to do is to apply what Germany could do, has done. If you have 27 members of the European Union and 27 mem members do what Germany has done, then the European Union will not function because Germany was exporting to all the other European countries, and the less developed countries cannot export to Germany. If all export like Germany, where will they export? They must find other markets, China, United States, and so on. So there must be a way to regulate uh, the production so that... Uh, the production of a country is sold, and the production also of the southern countries is sold. They cannot only buy and never sell. Uh, so I don't think that uh, there is a specific Greek problem. It's a problem of the whole union that must be settled. What about the question of the the difference between Greece and, and the other bailout countries, which was also part of uh, Vasilis's question. Difference between Greece, Greece and the other bailout countries. Uh, Greece had the same problems with Portugal, but Greece had not the same problems with Ireland, uh, Spain. Uh, the Spain, uh, the best example is Spain. Uh, Spain had a debt. Uh, that was less than 60% of the GDP. Greece had a debt of 130% uh, of the GDP. Uh, Spain had a deficit of uh, 3%. Greece had a deficit of 5%. So the reason of the crisis was not that Greece has spent far more because uh, not only the only reason because why was Spain in a crisis? And why was also Spain in a crisis without having a deficit? It was in a crisis because uh, uh, the German banks had given too much uh, money to the Spanish enterprises. So, uh, now about recent political uh, developments in Greece. 
I don't know how far you know what the situation in Greece was, but uh, I'll try to explain it. Um, in Greece, the main opposition party, the Syriza party, is a radical left party. A radical left party which says that if it comes to power, then uh, it will change everything has, that has been done up to now concerning pensions and wages, and people will have the uh, pensions and the wages that they had in 2007, I think. They say also that they do not accept the Troika, they do not accept interference but, uh, of the European Union, and uh, a radical reform of the debt situation is necessary. We, they will uh, again discuss the debt, and probably they will not accept a part or the total of it. Then, the government is the government that tries to cooperate and cooperates with the European Union, and uh, there was a political and is a political problem in this moment. According to the Greek constitution, the president must be elected in February, and the president is elected by the parliament. If the parliament does not elect the president, elections will take place. And uh, it's not sure, it's rather uh, not uh, realistic to say that a president will be elected because the government has not the majority of 108 votes that is needed. So, it is probable that in February there are elections. And if uh, there are elections, the now opposition party of Syriza will probably not have an absolute majority in parliament, but be the biggest party, and then there will be probably a second party that will cooperate with Syriza. We know, don't know what exactly party this will be from different Greek parties. And the situation, the political and economic uh, in Greece will change radically because there will be a government who does not want to cooperate with the European Union according to the rules of the Union. They say also the Union must change and uh, as far as the view of international relations is, a view is uh, a view of... Uh, uh, similar to those of, uh, as they say themselves, uh, of uh, the leading parties in Uruguay and uh, some other countries. Now, uh, the Greek government had decided had decided to uh, discuss with the Union and close the chapter of the memorandum of uh, the negotiations and the, about uh, the loans that Greece had taken and begin a new chapter to discuss with the debtors, with the creditors, what uh, they would pay back from the whole debt and what the new conditions will be so that there is growth in Greece. 
and this new chapter would begin uh, with a new year. But the Europeans said, and from their point they rightly said, we cannot begin this discussion because we will have probably elections, and after the elections we will have, you will have another government that is completely different from the government you had and has other opinions. So, they didn't say, but they thought the best thing to do is to wait, to agree that uh, the solution of the existing problems takes place after February, when uh, after the elections in February or March after the elections. And so, yesterday and uh, the day before yesterday, it was decided that uh, the existing treaties and agreements and although they finish the 31st of uh, December will continue to be applied for I say it in a very simple way to be applied for two months so that the, the new president the elections of a new president uh, is uh, realized and new elections if a new president is not elected are realized and then end of March uh, there will be a new Greek government and we'll discuss uh, the whole problem of uh, the Greek debt and uh, the Greek obligations towards the European Union uh, on a basis of uh, a new uh, order of uh, new decisions of the Greek people and the Greek parliament. Uh, that's uh, the recent political development in Greece. Uh, nobody knew in Greece uh, till three days before today what would happen in the next two months. Uh, everybody found a solution. We should do that, this or that. And now this is clear. Uh, there will be election of a president if the president is not elected president, election of a president end of December if the president is not elected there will be elections in February and after the elections in February a new government and this new government will discuss the whole complex of the Greek obligations and debt with the European Union uh, Clarity is a good thing, and I think uh, that this was good, that such an agreement was realized. Uh, no other comment. Thank you very much. There's a question in the front here. Um, I'd, I'd like to ask you, how do you assess the performance of the European Central Bank? The European Central Bank has... Uh, a single mandate, just a target, which is to achieve 2% inflation rate. Can you just repeat your question a bit can, louder, Can please? you speak a bit louder? Because, uh... Okay. Uh, how do you assess the performance of the European Central Bank in the last years? The ECB has a single mandate, which is keep inflation close to 2%. That's all. They don't have any other target, no employment, nothing at all. Just this 2%, close, but a bit below 2%. So in the last years, they haven't managed to achieve that. In some countries, inflation is negative. 
in the East, in the Euro area, in general, inflation is not even half the target. So uh, there are the instruments to achieve the target, but apparently the ECB is not uh, willing to use these instruments because of some political pressures. I don't know how could one help Mr. Draghi to uh, achieve this uh, target. I mean, should the Euro Parliament uh, press for uh, achievement of the 2% target? How could one help? I suppose it's, it's Mr. Draghi and some other members of the ECB board who want to use extra, um, extraordinary measures to achieve, I mean, like quantitative easing, to achieve this 2%. And there are a few other members who don't. And what we see, uh, apparently, I mean, we, the, the outsiders, is that uh, the few members who don't want uh, quantitative easing or other extraordinary measures are imposing their will. I mean, what would the, I don't know, it's, is it the Euro Parliament, is it the Council, who could press the ECB to deliver on its single mandate? Thank you, Len. There's a question at the top of the back there. There's a microphone. Could you please use it? Um, do you mind if I do the question in Greek? or? Uh, yes, we do mind. Right, okay. <laughs> right. Um, I just wanted to ask... Could you identify um, yourself, please? Simeon Eleftheriadis. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to ask, um, you have explained to us the, uh, the crisis from the European perspective. Uh, can you please, please uh, explain to us what the Greek government in uh, your presidency uh, did in order to avoid the crisis prior uh, to the actual crisis. Because um, there are still talks uh, in Greece uh, saying about the black money that the different political parties took from German uh, enterprises in order for them, for the governments, to actually uh, put them forward for different businesses in Greece, especially during the Olympic Games. Okay, um, this is the main question. Thank you. One question, please, Annie. Thank you. Thanas. Thanas is Gavos, another correspondent here in London. Uh, First of all, the no comment comment before, was it for the Syriza policy or for the, uh, Mr. Dimas as a candidate for the presidency? No, no comments on Mr. Dimas. Why should you comment on Mr. Dimas? Sorry? Mr. Dimas is uh, the candidate. Yeah, no, government. if you wanted to comment on the, on the person you know, that has been uh, proposed as the, the candidate I do not comment on persons, no. And uh, the other question is, uh, do you feel... Do you feel that Greece is ready to exit the, the bailout program? And would you expect relaxation of the demands uh, placed upon the Greek government even now at the last minute by the, by the creditors? So, uh, the first question is, uh, concerns the European Central Bank and uh, what you said, uh, with most of what you said, I agree. I, I can't remember everything. But uh, uh, in the what's the reality? The reality is that uh, the 2% was always seen 
by German and the others as uh, a top and uh, <coughs> it was not seen as a way of helping the European Union to have more economic uh, growth or more economic uh, uh, action. And nobody spoke ever of a 2% uh, for a long, long time, of a 2% that not only that only, not only has to be a single total 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 border a border excuse me, excuse me. a border uh, everybody said you must not go over 2% nobody said up to 2% you have to work to have 2% and now this discussion has begun and the European Central Bank wants to reach 2% in order to have uh, more economic activity there is also another problem concerning the inflation if you have in the south a depression and you have in the north 3% or 4% of inflation, then there are more exports from the south to the north. And this can be positive for both the north and the south. But this is not accepted yet, and Germany is against it. Though this would be a method, an accepted method, to overcome the stagnation in the European Union. The European Bank has made many statements. Mr. Draghi said, uh, as you know, he would do whatever it takes uh, to help the economy, and uh, he was very successful. People uh, were not uh, any more anxious about what will happen because they thought that the bank is looking after the interests of the European Union. Uh, this is a statement that uh, was rightly done but, uh, and it was very successful, but in reality, I would say, uh, the ECB cannot everything to, cannot do everything it wants because uh, it can give money but if a country were to violate the conditions of its agreed program the ECB could not support it anymore the support would cease this uh, however would mean that the market's panic uh, would be get stronger when the ECB stops to give the money. Uh, the ECB support would be withdrawn when most it was needed. So it's not uh, it's not uh, possible to believe that the ECB could get uh, away with unlimited intervention in the conditions uh, 
that uh, countries do not agree to programs and do things, uh, do have a policy that is not connected with the program. So, uh, my opinion is uh, that the role of the ECB must be discussed again. And the ECB has to have more powers in order to regulate monetary policy so as to fight not only inflation, but to help also growth. And this has to be done. Now, uh, the question, what was done to avoid crisis before the crisis? Uh, probably uh, uh, we have a different opinion for the reasons of the crisis. There are several reasons of the crisis. A reason is the structural crisis in Greece. Structural crisis, the administration does not work efficiently. The taxes are not collected. The rents are high. In Greece, the last days, we had a discussion that uh, people should not get a rent anymore after having worked only for 15 years. And uh, it was accepted that they should get the rent after 20 years of work. But generally, pension. in other European pension. countries... The pension. The pension, yes. The pension, sorry. In other European countries, you get the pension after 35 years of work or 30 years of work. So, uh, this is an example that uh, there was also a problem in uh, different, many, thousands, I would say, regulations that concerning separate groups. For example, in Greece there was a regulation that the unmarried daughters of per, uh, generals could have a, a pension after 35 or 40 years old uh, if they were not married. And so the daughters of generals usually did not marry, got a pension, and naturally were living with somebody and had a happy family with uh, a pension <laughs> that they had not paid for. Or uh, I'll bring another example. In Zakynthos, you know, Zakynthos is a nice island of the Ionian Islands, and in all the islands you have, you have to pay the electric uh, power according to the building you have, how big the building is, accordingly to pay, you pay the electric power. But because there was no, the administration was not uh, satisfactory, everybody paid what he declared. And naturally he did not declare what he had, but many declared the half, the third, or nothing at all. So two years ago, a new mayor was elected, and he decided that uh, aerophotographs were taken so that they found out what everybody's building is. And naturally, they found out 
that uh, most of the people did not pay the electric power they should have to pay. So they went to the council of the of the the local council. The local council and the local council decided that everybody will pay according to the photographs. After ten minutes the mayor's office were taken by thousands of people that were protesting and they threw the mayor away and they said we will not leave because this decision is taken away back. Uh, that's an example. The decision was not taken back, but it took one year in order to have peace again in Zakynthos. That's an example that in a, a country that is not yet developed uh, socially or administratively, there are many, many, many reasons that uh, the country cannot uh, have growth quickly or there are problems, uh, too much money is paid and uh, not the necessary taxes are not collected. This, just a moment, just, I'm not finished. I have not finished. I have not finished. Okay, one second, please. I have not finished. So, this all were examples of structural problems, of administrative problems. And naturally, all the governments are responsible, those who did not stop them, those who find new ways to give money to people, and uh, those who did not react when they existed. That's the first problem. The second problem is the problem of the of the of spending money. Now, uh, if you are interested to find out who spent much money, you should go and take the statistics to find out when the deficit was big. When the debt was big, if, shall we say, in 2001, the debt was 100% of the GDP, and in 2009, the debt was 140% of the GDP, the spending was between 2000 and 2009. It's not the government of 2000 which spent the money, but it's the government of 2007, 8, and 9 which spent, which spent the money. Take an example. That's today in the newspapers, these days in the newspapers. The government of 2004 decided to give 300 billion to the uh, farmers, because it said the farmers had, uh, because of the weather, damages, and they needed money. According to the European Union rules, a government cannot say, I give damages, uh, pay damages back to the farmers, if the European Union does not agree because we have 
a common agricultural policy. So the Greek government paid the 300 million, and then the Commission and the, uh, uh, the lawyers of the European Union and also the courts of the European Union said you have paid money that you should not have paid. So take the money back, the 300 million back. But the 300 million were not paid out of the money of the European Union. They were paid out of the Greek budget. So somebody spent 300 million that should not have been spent. And now we must not give back only 300 million, but approximately with the penalties 500 million. So when you ask who was responsible for the crisis, taking this example, I would say responsible for the crisis were all those who spent money where they should not have spent them it and those who spent more than 100 percent of the GDP. Okay, thank you very much. Can I take can I take two more questions before before we wrap up, please? Uh, one question from the gentleman up there, and one question from the gentleman in the front here. Uh, thanks for this talk, Costadinos uh, Chanis. I work at the University of Edinburgh and uh, at Bloomberg. Um, my question is, given your experience from the successful entry of the country in the Eurozone and the ongoing crisis, what is your view over the future of the Eurozone after four years, five years? What is your view, your view of the future of the Eurozone? Thank you. Hello. Yes. Can you hear me? Hi. Stratos uh, Hatsiannis, chairman of the Hellenic Bank Association. Uh, very, very swiftly questions. Relevant to Greece and the south of Europe, is there any simulation, like corp corporates, corporates make a lot of simulations of events that may go wrong. Do you think that there is any simulation about any European country, whether Greece or from the south, um, uh, repudiates its uh, commitments and that would lead for an exit? potential exit, or the repudiation itself. So is there any known simulation from the, sort of cent the European countries about that? Uh, the, se the second question... Stop it. One, uh, one sorry, question, could, could you repeat, please, because... <coughs> do not speak so near to the... Yes. Sorry, sorry about that, yes. The question is, is there any simulation uh, at Brussels level? What would happen if one country repudiates its uh, commitments? And more specifically, is there a mechanism and what would happen if a country would uh, not continue its commitments and then the question of exit would come up? And finally, what some always want to know is, is do you have, uh, in your opinion, is there any leader, visionary leader in the EU, EU today that could implement far-reaching changes? So, <clears throat> uh, I answer your question first. Uh, in my opinion, 
no country of the European Union will ever try to exit the European Union, uh, only in case that there is a dramatic turn in the situation, they don't accept uh, any rules anymore, and they don't want to comply, and they try to have an independent uh, policy, uh, monetary policy and economic policy. But I don't think that this ever will happen, because the European Union countries are so intertwined uh, that if any of these countries will leave, it will have enormous problems. It will have enormous problems, not only because the existing cooperation between the European Union countries, but also because of global globalization. Uh, we are not more in uh, <coughs> the period where, for example, shall we take uh, Greece or Portugal? They can have an independent relation with China or an independent relation with the United States. The relation of Greece or Portugal with China or the United States or Africa is uh, agreed, uh, or I could say also dictated, but in any case, uh, by the center of the European Union. It is discussed in Brussels and then applied. Uh, Greece, Portugal, Malta has no possibility to have its own policy uh, in these matters. Take, for example, the matter of immigration. Greece at this moment is the country that has, I think, the most immigrants at this moment. Italy was the country with more immigrants some months ago. There are so many immigrants, and you need so much money in order to help them, and so many boats to control, and policemen to control, that a country of the European Union, like Greece or Malta, cannot do it. Even Italy cannot do it alone, because it costs too much. But the question of immigration is not a Greek question. It's also a question of Great Britain, Germany, and so on. This Germany and Great Britain say, of course, but they don't want to give the money. But they should give the money. And this is an important problem in the European Union. So, <clears throat> then, another problem I will mention, the Internet. The Internet now is uh, controlled and dictated by the United States. Uh, it's necessary to change the rules. For example, as you know, uh, the European Union is in a controversy with Google about the private data, about the possibilities to decide how the Internet functions, and so on. None of the European countries can discuss with the problem alone with uh, the United States. So they have to cooperate in order to find a common solution. So uh, I don't believe that the country will exit. Uh, 
but this does not mean that uh, if a country does not apply the rules, what will happen? Because uh, in the case of Greece, Portugal, Ireland, uh, the European Union in a way helped them, they helped them, but they got also their money back in this way. But uh, it can happen also that they don't find a common solution. But uh, it's rather improbable, quite improbable that a country leaves or a country is thrown out of the European Union. What about the question, the last question, of yes. where you see the Eurozone in three or four years' time? So, uh, I can't say where I, uh, the Eurozone will be. Uh, the Eurozone confronts an existential challenge. It has to decide other, either to reform its institutions in order to be far more efficient, and I have explained that an economic government is necessary, that common policies in many areas are necessary, and uh, to have a policy in order to have greater stability, growth, insist on growth, and uh, also to help countries to adjust to the pressures and the necessities of a globalizing world. Uh, the other possibility is to break up in whole or in part. So dismantling the Eurozone, as I said, is conceivable, but it would create a big financial, economic, and political mess and lead to the unraveling of the entire project for European integration. Uh, I don't think that uh, what's conceivable will also happen. But in any case, this that does not mean that, as we do today, leave the problems without solution, try to find uh, solutions that are only valid for one year, two years, three years, but we must a big effort, a big effort in order to improve our cooperation and common approach to the problems of Europe and, and act effectively in a wider world. In our world, in our world that is globalized, there is no other way possible. We are compelled to cooperate. We are compelled to try in common to solve the problems. Those who say we cannot uh, alone do a wonder in our country because we have fine money or because we have oil, that's also a big question, we have oil, and now with the oil we can do everything we want. This is nonsense, absolute nonsense. You have to cooperate. And uh, may I bring an example with the oil? Two years ago, I was in Bahrain at a meeting of uh, prime ministers, and uh, the discussion was about oil, the price of oil, and the future of oil. Why did they discuss? Because two years ago, 
All these countries producing oil in the Middle East and the big producers like the United States knew that there will be a revolution in the production of oil, that the shale gas will replace the traditional oil produced in the Middle East. And they did also know that the shale gas would cost far less than the traditional oil. Uh, nobody of you, neither me, remembers that such a discussion could take place, took place in Greece, in Europe, or elsewhere. We thought that uh, the status or the situation of uh, the oil production would remain the same in future. So, they decided then that uh, the United States will produce the shale gas, they will export the shale gas, but as they uh, decided also now, the Arab countries or the Middle East countries will uh, continue to produce also their oil. Shale gas will cost about 60 to 40 percent the barrel. Uh, the oil of uh, oil, the usual oil, will cost about 65, 70, on some countries, 100, 105, 110 barrel. An enormous problem that was discussed two years ago, and they took the first decisions. So this shows that uh, no country can alone solve its problem because these are uh, global problems. And during this discussion, allow me to say, I asked uh, what will happen with Greece. Because you know in Greece there are people that think that they have very big reserves of oil in the near Crete, near Zagrithos, uh, in the east, in the west, in the north, and wherever. And now also Cyprus is, will be an important oil producer, and they think that the international situation has changed. So I mentioned all these opinions. There were, there was, uh, uh, there were many smiles, and they said to me, you should be happy to have this oil, because this is the only possibility to solve the Cyprus problem and nothing more. No, sorry, I'm sorry, we, we, we complete, I'm sorry, we complete, I'm sorry, we're completely out of time, we're completely out of time, we're already run over time. Before inviting the audience to, to, to thank Mr. Simitis, can I just make two promotional announcements? One, his book, his book is on sale outside the auditorium. Uh, if anybody wishes to buy it, by all means buy it. Uh, Mr. Simitis will actually stay behind for a few minutes and sign any books that you wish to have signed by him. Secondly, uh, on Thursday evening, the Hellenic Observatory has another event, a public lecture, uh, in this room, again at 6.30, by uh, Yanis Boutaris, the mayor of Thessaloniki. Uh, title uh, of the lecture is Local Governance in Time of Crisis, Lessons for Greece from the City of Thessaloniki. And as a token of our appreciation, uh, as, as well as your applause, we'd like to offer Mr. Simitis uh, a small token of gratitude for this evening's talk.